0: Hi, I'm C. Kim Miles. I'm one of the cinematographers on Showtime's Yellow Jackets, and this is The Go Creative Show.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with C. Kim Miles, the cinematographer of Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: No, oh, thanks for having me. This is fantastic. It's, uh, I love your show.
1: Well, I love your show. Yellow Jackets is wild. It's wild. And I cannot wait to talk to you about it. Um, and there's just so much to talk about. I'm, I'm like already excited to go. But before we get there, I just want to very quickly mention our sponsors today Filmmakers Academy. Master Your Craft at FilmmakersAcademy.com. We're actually going to be hearing from one of the instructors at Filmmakers Academy later in the show, so you get that to look forward to. Uh, This episode is also sponsored by Ari Rentals. and Of course, I want to encourage you to follow us on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the episode, but see the episode. Um, and all things go creative show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Kim, Yellow Jackets is a wild show. I mean, I just keep saying that over and over. And I feel like it's a sleeper hit because it, you're on, as we speak, I think the most recent episode is eight. And I feel like in the past couple of weeks is when everyone is starting to now say, Have you seen that show? Like, what the hell's going on over there? What a great experience that must have been to work on something like this.
0: Uh, yeah, it was great. It, it was a real uh, roller coaster ride uh, putting it together. I remember getting the call uh, f- uh, about the show from uh, a producer friend of mine named Brad Van Aragon, who runs, who ran the show in town. And uh, um, he pitched it to me and I said, what? <laughs> that sounds crazy. And um, uh, I read the scripts. I'm a, I'm a pilot too. So that's one of the reasons he reached out because I'm, I'm, there's an aviation connection as well. And, and, uh, um, uh, you know, the first thoughts you have are, are that it's like lost. You know, the movie uh, uh, from the nineteen nineties, which is is a difficult uh, movie to watch these days. It's uh, certainly not aged. Yeah. At all. I shouldn't say that, but anyway. Um, uh, so yeah, a really wild logline and uh, uh, lots of fun to work on for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. So for for the people that aren't familiar with it yet. Um, how do you describe the show? I mean, you had mentioned you're a pilot, which is important, i you know, in a way, because <laughs> the show kind of all revolves around this idea of a plane crash. So how do you describe the show to people?
0: Um I tell people that it's about uh, about these uh, uh, these ladies that we meet in the present day whose lives are are somehow different than everybody else's. and we find out that they were all members of a soccer team that was on their way to Nationals, 25 years ago when their airplane went down in the woods. And uh, it's kind of a character study with these ladies and and, um, learning how their lives have changed based on events that transpired while they were lost in the woods for 18 or 19 months.
1: Oh, and by the way, everyone's a cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) Just that little extra piece. (laughs) There's hints of that, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. Well, when the show like this comes to you, and I know you were working opposite another director of photography as well. So you guys were working together on that. But when a show like this comes to you, what what is your first thought? Like when you start to you know when you when you need to apply visuals to a storyline that's so like crazy like this, um, what's your first step to kind of work through those visuals?
0: Right. Well, on a show like this, um, first of all, I should say that, that the pilot episode was directed by Karan Kusama and, uh, and photographed by Julie Kirkwood uh, down in L.A. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think now. Um, so a lot of the answers were already um, presented or addressed uh, in terms of the photography of the show. Um, we looked at uh, uh, Trevor Forrest was, the, was my uh, counterpart on the show. He did the odd numbered episodes after, uh, uh, after the pilot. Um, and he and I looked at the uh, at the pilot together, and uh, we consulted with Ashley and Bart uh, and Jonathan, our, our executive producers and our, our co-creators, um, to determine what we liked about the pilot, what we didn't like about the pilot, and, and how we wanted to move forward and, and uh, expand the show. Um, at that point, um, Trevor was very gracious and said, look, you know, you're, you're doing the first uh, episode, so why don't um, you bring your influence into the show a yeah you're kind bit of setting than, you know, the pace along. yeah even yeah, though you didn't bit, do the yeah. pilot
1: you are still setting the pace right. for the remainders
0: that's right yeah it's you know episode two is when people start to watch the show and not to not to uh, blow my own horn or anything but it, it is when people start to take note of what's happening in the show so it was an important um uh an important episode to to address and get it right you know
1: Um, yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, once you are watch, once you've made the decision that I'm going to watch beyond the pilot, you are now, you're right. There is something about that second episode being almost like the first episode you're committing to, (laughs) to say like, yes, I'm now going to give this show 10 hours. Um, and there was one, (laughs) one kind of difference that I noticed between the pilot and episode two is I feel like you guys brought in more camera movement. And I'm wondering if that's something that you feel as well, or am I just kind of, Noticing that out of nowhere, but it seems like camera movement become became more uh, important than it was in season, yes. or or at least more utilized than in season one. Yeah, and I think that's, episode that's a one, not of a season number. one.
0: <laughs> episode one. Yeah, um, that's a function of a number of different things. Um, first of all, episode one took place primarily uh, in in the present or in in flashbacks prior to the crash, um, and. As such, it, it sort of sets the table in terms of introducing characters and um, and establishing the world that they're in. It doesn't really get into the woods quite as much as we did in Episode 2. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, I know Karin and Julie were very concerned with having very carefully composed shots to really set the table and, and um, create a world uh, uh, to propel the season through. And then in Episode 2, we... Um, we really got into um, introducing the forest and introducing the chaos that then uh, uh, ensues as a result of the uh, introduction to the forest. So, uh, one of the things that we talked about very carefully was uh, was introducing camera movement in ways to uh, to separate to delineate the worlds uh, from one another. There, there were three sort of broad. Time periods that we dealt with in the show. There's the present day, where we uh, uh, where we meet the ladies, that, uh, you know, uh, in their current lives. There's the um, past in the 1990s before the crash, and then there was the past in the 1990s after the crash. So all three of those get a different visual treatment and a different operating methodologies and, and that sort of thing. Um, the other uh, reason that uh, that we introduce a lot more movement is that. Uh, our A camera operator, actually both of our operators, um, Daryl Hartwell on the A camera and Nathan McTagg on our B camera, are operators that I've worked with uh, quite a bit. And one of Daryl's strengths on the A camera is being able to tell the story in a way that I don't have to micromanage. He can he can work with directors and um, and really pull performances and really uh, bring those performances to the screen. And one of his strengths is is moving the camera and um, a philosophy that we've worked on many times over the years is to to try to encourage directors in episodic uh, productions to think more like feature directors and and uh, develop more complicated blockings that that allow you to to uh, uh, run shots that last longer rather than going to going to close up coverage all the time. Um,
1: Do you find and, that TV uh, directors s- tend to think more narrowly than feature directors?
0: I don't know if narrowly really is the is is the term I'd use. I think they, they it comes. There's a different school of of uh, storytelling uh, when it comes to television. You know, a, a feature director is usually someone that's come, however they've come up the chain. Uh, they've gotten there by directing features, or by photographing features, or by editing features. Um, and TV directors tend to be to come more from. Um, from the writing pool or from the editorial pool, and there's sort of two very different paths that lead to the same job. And um, uh, traditionally, television—you know, when we when we all used to sit around a black and white TV that was 10 inches uh, in diameter across the room—you needed those big close-ups so that you could see what actors were thinking. And nowadays, you know, people sit back and look at you know 75 or 80 inch uh, uh, LCD screens or LED screens. And those really big television close-ups that you used to get back in the '80s are are now, you know, overwhelmingly big. So, so there's there's definitely been a trend lately of of trying to push more towards theatrical framing and, and um, allowing audiences to see more of the uh, more of the world around them rather than just uh, giant close-ups of uh, of uh, characters. You know, so so it's more uh, about a
1: blocking thing. That that you're noticing, it, it is. is different. Yeah. It's so weird that yeah. you said that because it, it, I, for some reason, started watching MOD. <laughs> just, I don't know. Yeah. For, it just I just sort of popped up. I'm like, I've never seen this show, and I'm kind of interested in what it was all about. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, the close-ups are so jarring because out of nowhere, you'd have you know it, it was in four three. Obviously, it wasn't in widescreen, but right. you yeah. you'd have a scene, and the sets were very very small and not very deep. So there's like no depth of field at all, and um, right. you'd get a close-up of somebody's face that seemed so forced because it was just uh-huh. giant, and I I wasn't even putting it together until you just mentioned at this moment that that was yeah. because of the TV screens being small and far away from you. It, it's just, it's so obvious, but you don't think about it until you think about it.
0: Right, yeah, it's kind of an old-school thing, you know, and it's it's taken, you know, I've been doing episodic for I don't know, ten or fifteen years now, and and that has been probably the toughest battle in, in terms of of pushing television into a into a more theatrical uh, visual space is is trying to get people away from over covering scenes. You know the the, the trouble with with um, episodic stuff, and it's not this isn't really anybody's fault or anything like that. It's just it's just the way that we've grown up, and in television you tend to cut more because um, there's sometimes a disconnect between what the director is intending and what the, the showrunners or the mm. the other creatives are intending, and a lot of the times you'll get requests for uh, on set. When you know when we're doing a complicated one or with a really with a really complicated blocking, a lot of times you'll get a request uh, from producers to say, "Look, can we just cover a close up here and there, just in case we need to change the pacing, just in case we need to manipulate the storyline a little bit?" You know, so so there's a, there's definitely more footage and more coverage going into the editorial bins in episodic TV that that can then be accessed later uh, than there would be in a feature. You know where we can we can run a, a five minute one or without having to without having to apologize to anyone or or you know cover ourselves because that's the intent of the shot. So
1: I always imagine too that just directing episodic like coming into a show. Especially when there's multiple seasons coming into a show for one episode, where there's a whole lineage of episodes before you, <laughs> and yeah. and just working with a showrunner whose show, you know, the show is their baby, and then just there's, there has to be sort of a weird feeling where it's like, yeah, I'm expecting control of this episode, but at the same time, like it's kind of not my show, <laughs> so it's it's yeah. got to be sort of a, a strange a strange way to work.
0: Yeah, it it, it is, and I and I feel. Uh, I've, I've done that. I've, I've directed a little bit of flash, uh, uh oh, no way. that I shot for for three seasons. Yeah. And, um, and that was not so much a function of being, of wanting to direct, but, but something that they said, Hey, you know, if you stay for another season, we'll give you an episode to direct that kind of thing. Um, and it's fun, but I can see how it would be hard. You know, you're coming in, like you say, you're coming in from nowhere and you're just you just happen to be the person sitting in that seat for this episode. You're not necessarily the the director that everyone's um, you know been looking forward to. You're just the person that has somebody has to sit in that chair. And this week it's you. So it's there's a lot less respect uh, I find that uh, that that directors get in episodic television. Uh, than they get on features. You know, in a feature, every decision comes to the director. How do you, know, what color do you want the wallpaper? What, uh, you know, uh, how do you like your costume? All of that comes down to the director saying, yeah, I love that. Or no, I hate that. In episodic, the director is just the first layer of the series of committees that it, that it then goes through. You know, he's, the director says, okay, I, I like that, but let's find out what, you know, whether it's in, in keeping with the, with the tone of the show. And the production designer will chime in and the producers will chime in and then there'll be extended discussions. So there's sometimes... Simple decisions like what color should the paint on the wall be take you know a week of back and forth emails um, so it's 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 definitely a different environment for a director on a, on a television set because they're they're just they just don't have the same authority that they do uh, in features
1: let's talk about the look of yellow jackets you had mentioned earlier that there are three different time periods three different looks going on you have your present day. You have your kind of uh, mid-90s pre-crash, and then you have your uh, post-crash in the woods. Um, Each of them are very distinct, and they have to be, because when you're popping around Mm -hmm. throughout the episode, you kind of have to know where you are. And um, I'd like to kind of break down your approach to those three different looks. And I particularly want to start with the forest because, uh, or the woods rather, Mm -hmm. because I feel like that to me seems the most challenging because you have to make it look interesting and there's really nothing going on there. Like it, you're just outside in the woods and um, it's it's sort of like in the same way if you were given like a cop, you know, a police procedural and you're in one office for 45 minutes of an hour, how do you make it right. interesting each week? So talk to me about the way you approached the scenes in the woods, developed its look and... Um, uh, and I'm particularly interested in that sort of post-crash moment where we're first, as an audience, experiencing right. this.
0: Sure. Well, that's the, why don't we start there? That was the first sort of time in episode two when we, um, you know, in episode in the pilot, we we uh, we hinted the upcoming crash, and we've we've told the audience that there was a crash. And then in episode two, we open on on Misty experiencing the crash uh, from her perspective. It's in, in many ways episode two is Misty's episode. Yeah. Um, so we needed to now create a world that didn't exist in the in the pilot, which is the the uh, post crash in the woods uh, field. So we looked at a bunch of different um, uh, different options. We tested a bunch of different lenses and cameras and stuff. We shot the show on the uh, Arri Alexa LF, uh, which is a, a Fantastic uh, piece of equipment, which we can talk about another time. But uh, um, no,
1: we're we're going to talk about it. Don't you worry. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: But the the, we wanted to because we wanted to give each world a different look. um, We decided that lensing would be a way to do that. Uh, Lensing and operating are our two big um, uh, demarcation uh, techniques between the uh, uh, between the worlds. So in the woods, we were on Atlas uh, Orion anamorphics. Uh, because the show was delivered, uh, the pilot was delivered in two three nine. Um, we were able to deliver the rest of the show in two three nine widescreen, which was really great. Um, it saved me because the pilot was delivered that way. I didn't even have the conversation because usually you have to fight a little bit to get to get the widescreen uh, uh, ratio on on TV. So uh, luckily they'd uh, already done that. Um, so that let us use um, Orion anamorphics. Uh, what? Yeah. What did those their-
1: lenses? Give you that were perfect for the woods.
0: Well, they gave us the um, they gave us that anamorphic bokeh, you know that that kind of imperfect um, edge yep. to the frame, imperfect um, depth of field, That's sort of, all those traditional sort of anamorphic things that that we love with with old Panavision C series, for example. The, the Orions actually have a very C series look in the way they flare and the way they uh, the way their bokeh looks. Uh, without some of the downsides of, of older glass. Uh, they're very fast. Uh, they're really, really great lenses, relatively lightweight for anamorphics. Um, the other thing that we did was in digital lensing was, um, uh, was operating. We decided that in the woods, we wanted the camera to be one of the characters, one of the girls, and we wanted the audience to feel as though they were immersed and experiencing everything that, uh, uh, that the cast were experiencing, or that the, that the characters rather were experiencing, at the same time as one of them, rather than being uh, more observational as they are in the other two worlds. Yeah. Um, so we did a lot of handheld work in the woods, um, and uh, kept the lenses short and kept uh, uh, kept the camera right in amongst the girls as much as we could, um, so that we could, uh, uh, you know, participate in the storytelling rather than document it.
1: And you so said like you were using the player. Alexa LF?
0: That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So we had LS and LF minis or mini LFs, or I forget how those are uh, supposed to be called. Um, the minis are uh, are a great lightweight camera uh, uh, that also offer you the uh, the LF large format sensor. Um, they're just they're just great. They're, you know, there's the the sensor size gives you an amazing uh, depth of field. It gives you some really great. Um, Uh, focal length options, field of view options, Um, you know, compared to a 35 millimeter camera, larger format cameras allow you a wider field of view with longer focal lengths. So for example, um, when we're, uh, when we want the field of view of an 18 millimeter uh, in a 35 millimeter camera uh, on an LF, you're probably in the 24, 21, 24 millimeter kind of range. So you give up, you know, you have the field of view of an 18 mil, but you give up a little bit of that distortion that an 18 mil um, uh, tends to introduce, which allowed us to keep the um, keep the frame looking more less distracting and, 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 and allowed us to draw less attention to the camera, um, and the uh, and the anamorphic really really played into that too. So
1: well, what I think is yeah. so great about the anamorphics in the woods is that you have so much. In the out, like in the, in the edges of the frame, you've got the trees, you have so many things that are sort of vertical. So it does that little bit of a bend just makes yeah. everything feel yeah. surreal in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, and you know, Boca, when there's highlights in the bokeh, there, they have that traditional sort of anamorphic oval shape to them instead of being circular, um, which gives the woods kind of this mystical vertical kind of feeling of of being compressed uh, yeah. all the time, which is, uh, yeah, I love playing with subconscious things with the audience. Uh, and that was one of the things that we, uh, we were always playing with.
1: What's another, how do you, how do you work with subconscious?
0: Um, little things like, um, uh, manipulating eye lights, for example, you know, uh, uh where you put, uh, an eye light reflection in an actor's eyes, Uh, can really influence uh, how the audience perceives that character, you know, less light, more light, you know, depending on how much into that character you want to see how much you want to withhold uh, from the audience. Um, Things like camera height in relation to, to a character's eyeline, you know, being low to let them dominate, being high to let them uh, recede a little bit. Um, All sorts of little things like that, 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 uh, that, that are subconscious that you don't necessarily notice right away, but that, tend to run as undercurrents as you're viewing the the show and and you know uh, I just I just love doing that stuff the subconscious stuff
1: <laughs> so the more so at the eye light thing I mean the the camera yeah. height makes sense and I feel like I, I understand that I've seen that yep. I don't know if I've seen the eye light trick or if I have I haven't noticed it so
0: it's one yeah it's a very subtle thing um, uh, you know when you have a, a, an antagonist that's intimidating someone uh, and 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 you're really not sure where he's going to take the uh, he or she is going to take the uh, the story. Um, removing an eye light and and keeping their eyes dark tends to tends to disconnect the audience from that character a little bit and and make them a little bit more curious about what's actually going on in the character's mind. Yeah. You know, when you have lots of light in, a, in an actor's eyes, it's it's um, it, it, those are the. Uh, to be cliche about it, they're the windows to the soul. So the more you can see into them, the more hints and clues you get as to their motivations and that. So by denying that you can, you can really put an audience on edge uh, in a way that they maybe aren't conscious of right away. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, That makes sense. And something that I'm noticing in the woods scenes um, is this feeling of isolation. And actually it seems like there's a bit of a character. I haven't seen all of the available episodes yet. I haven't seen eight, but that it, it feels as though in the cinematography in the woods at first our characters are kind of owned by the woods like they they, they don't understand what's going on they're scared it, it feels like it, the woods are just kind of caving in around them they don't have any security as the yep. show goes it feels like there's less isolation for them as they become more comfortable and in more control of these environments um it still is horrifying for sure. There's no like comfort there. That's for sure. But d- it, am I making like my picking up on something that you guys are intending is this idea of them as they become more familiar with the woods, the woods becomes less, you know, domineering over them. There's less isolation.
0: Yeah. At, at first, yes, we, we, we started creeping a little bit longer and longer on focal lengths as, as we went along. We didn't keep doing it the whole season, but we we definitely got a little bit longer uh, on the lens as they got more comfortable in the woods and the reason for that is that you know when you're when you're close and on a uh, in anamorphic terms you're on a 40mm or a 32mm tw- uh, prime um, you have a character that's 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 um, placed in a world that's that's vast and really big so we were doing a lot of close on the 32mm, close on the 40mm uh, at the beginning of the season to really play um, that sort of over, uh, overshadowing or, 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 the domination of the woods over their characters. And then as they, as they start to get control over their environment, you know, lighting fires and that sort of thing, um, we started going a little bit longer on the lens just to compress the woods and push them back a little bit away from, uh, from the characters. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, you did pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> how
1: are you, um, how are you lighting these exterior scenes?
0: Um, Daytime stuff is pretty pretty straightforward. You know, we drag um, uh, helium balloons around in the woods, um, and we use them really just for a little bit of a key uh, from one side or the other. Uh, the rest of the time, it's it's you know bounce boards and and uh, controlling the sun more than anything else. Mm. Um, I like to uh, it, 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 this goes hand in hand with our, our with our operating strategy and being able to uh, be one with the girls and a character amongst the girls. I like to give directors and the cast um, as much of the set as they as they want to to go about their uh, their business. Yeah. Um, there's nothing I find more intrusive to a performance than than having to corral the performance into a into a a, a proscenium that's predefined, um, especially in the woods where where you know anything goes and and giving the cast and the directors the freedom to just. Run around meant that we that we couldn't do big lighting setups in there and we had to stay nimble and and uh, and reactive to uh, uh, to what was going on.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. that makes sense. It's, and it seems like just watching the episodes that I've had so far, it seems like there's an overall softness in there. And yes, you have the benefit of having a lot of shadows because of the big, tall trees. But it's still it seems like. It seems like a purposeful avoidance of any like beautiful sunlight. It's more this kind of soft, not necessarily gray, but a little overcasty and sort of softness.
0: Yeah, and that's and that was sort of partially just the nature of being in the woods, right? And it it, and we wanted it to feel. You know, sunlight always brings hope. You know, when there's when there's a uh, a nice hot backlight, there's always a ray of of uh, I don't know, like. I don't want to say holiness, but it, you know it feels like there's a spiritual elevation when there's when there's hard sunlight. I'm talking like I'm super religious. I'm not. Um, uh, it's so a therapy session. Like keep-
1: if it, we're, we're getting it out. We're getting it out there. This is what we do. <laughs> I'm
0: discovering stuff about myself all the time. Um, <laughs> Bring but, some uh, tissues uh, with
1: you next time you're on the show.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, keeping that sort of softness allowed us to introduce those moments of sunlight and, and hope more carefully, you know, and, and if we had them all the time, then the whole show would just, it would look great, but it would be kind of, a uh, uh, sort of a one trick pony. Um, there are times when there is, you know, when, um, I'm trying to think of specific times, uh, maybe when they're, uh, shooting the rifle the first time there's, there's sunlight kind of dappling through the clouds yeah. and into the trees and stuff. So there's little beats of, you know, whenever there's a, a victory, there's, there's, you know, uh, a little bit more, uh, golden light that comes through and not necessarily by design. You know, sometimes we just got lucky and, and that was just the way it happened to be, you know, um, or we would hold a scene off going, you know, I think that the sun's going to break in two hours. So why don't we do this other scene first? And then by the time we get over there, it'll we'll get a, you know, a more um, uh, uplifting uh, lighting scenario. You know, that so kind
1: of you thing. had your yeah. big um, helium balloon. You yep. had your, um, a bunch of, uh, I'm guessing, bounce cards, just big giant yeah. silks, anything yeah. controlling the sun basically is what we're, what, what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I want to transition to the '90s part of the mm-hmm. show, kind of pre-crash yeah. '90s, because I do think you're yeah. utilizing the sunlight quite a bit there, because that's where all the hope is—is is, uh, yeah. this hopefulness yeah. of you know of winning the championship and going on this amazing <laughs> trip, and you're sort of learning about these these young women. Um, So talk to me about the way you approach that because it's a period piece where in the woods, it's the 90s too, but you don't need to represent the 90s. In the other part, you need to represent the 90s. So how do you do that cinematically? (laughs) I remember those Um, days. I was in high school those days. So it's (laughs) – in the music is perfect.
0: Right. And I think think, um, the music is fantastic. Um, I think a lot of us um, being the same – of the same vintage – just sort of naturally gravitated to, <laughs> to, to framing it and shooting it the way that we remembered the nineties. Um, we used a different set of lenses in pre-crash nineties. Um, those were a set of airy, uh, DNA primes, mm-hmm. um, that, um, uh, that Matt Colsey down in, uh, at airy in, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, tuned for us. So we had, we had different sort of effects, uh, in different lenses. Um, The Airy DNAs are kind of infinitely tunable, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, You can do things like add edge vignetting to them or defocus the edges or leave nothing but a a narrow band in the center of the frame that that resolves properly and let everything else just go crazy. And uh, so we had a, a set of those that were more or less tuned pretty straight down the down the middle without a lot of effects, except for the um, I think it was the thirty six mil, it was a thirty two or a thirty six mil um, that actually had come off of another show and had been detuned on the edges. So it was out of focus, and we really liked that, so we we tweaked it a little bit to uh, to make it work for us and, and use that lens quite a bit. Yeah, um, in in <laughs> in pre crash nineties, um, but no, it was it was. Um, you know, that was a really subconscious thing, how we framed pre-crash nineties. Um
1: how do you mean? And by the way, but as just, you're thinking about that, I was just talking about yeah. I was um I interviewed the director of photography of Being the Ricardos, and oh my god, it was just yesterday and I forgot his name. That's <laughs> killing me. But we were talking oh. about um oh Jeff Cornrith, what am I talking about? Of course. Right, um, right. But we were talking about, I believe it was him. I've done a bunch of interviews the past couple of weeks, but I believe it was him. Um, that was using DNA lenses because of that ability to sort of have the little inconsistencies. Because yeah. he was representing, yeah. you know, the '40s and '50s and all that for uh, "I Love yeah. Lucy" time. So there is yeah. something I'm hearing a lot of people talk about those lenses, and always the 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 thought is it's customization, its ability to have not every yeah. lens look the same. Um, yeah. It's the inconsistencies that people seem to really want these days.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's you know, there's been. Um, you know, five years ago, the drive was really to to develop lenses that were, well, let's go a little bit further back. When 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 HD and when digital capture started to permeate, um, we went from film cameras that had spent, you know, 100 years being developed with optics that have been, you know, 100 years in development, all those Panavision lenses that are just beautiful pieces of glass. All of a sudden, we had this transition to news cameras, <laughs> you know, with the Sony F900s and the Panasonic cams, that didn't have a great lens selection available to them. And all of a sudden, we were dealing with with these kind of low-cost zoom lenses, and and, and the, the onus on optical quality dissipated a little bit. And then over the next, you know, I'd say between 2007, 2010... We started to see lens manufacturers paying attention to this digital origination stuff and building better glass for that. And then it got the lenses got so good that it started exposing all the uh, aspects of digital origination that we don't like, which is to say that that stuff was getting too sharp and too crisp and too perfect, you know. Um, so now that the pendulum is swung again, and, and and as the cameras have evolved, and we're getting larger format, uh, larger sensor sizes, and that sort of thing. The, the digital origination stuff is starting to look more um, more filmic, for lack of a better uh, way to say that. Yeah. Um, and as such, now we're now everybody's looking for ways to bring those imperfections back into <laughs> back into the image, like you know, like we're talking about here. And the DNAs are really are really fantastic lenses. I mean, truth be told, any lens can be tuned. It's just a matter of how easily that can be done. Yeah. There's uh, there's lots, and I imagine that's going to be a thing that that more and more. People are paying attention to is, is, is tunability of lenses.
1: Let's take a quick break and talk about Filmmakers Academy, specifically a course that I think you guys would absolutely love. And it's called How to Be a Camera Assistant. Its trainer is Derek Edwards. And I wanted to bring Derek on for just a minute to answer a question for me. And my question is simply what is a camera assistant responsible for on set?
0: So, responsibility for an AC, number one, is to keep it in focus. Help tell the story. A lot of focus pullers don't realize that they are actually telling the story of what is in focus. That's the biggest thing to me, is keep it in focus.
1: And, of course, that's just one of many, many, many many tips as part of your course. And you guys can check out the entire course right now on FilmmakersAcademy.com. Well I sort of stepped all over your answer about the framing uh, for the 90s and sort of being representative of what you remember from the 90s. So right. uh, what right. was your what were your visual references for the you know mid 90s scenes in
0: yellow jackets? It, it, you know, I don't think we ever actually consciously developed um, a look for the mid the, the pre crash nineties. Cause they, it kind of came along. Uh, there was a little hint of it at the beginning of, of episode two. And I think it was one of the first things that we, uh, one of the first scenes that we shot also, and we were still kind of finding our way. So I think it was, it was sort of a generic, it was the scene with Misty, uh, in the bedroom in episode two, when she gets a phone call from, uh, uh from a collection of girls that are yes. giving her a hard time. Um, and it was a, a really, <laughs> it was a really tight location. It was really small. We were upstairs, up this narrow staircase to get all our gear up there, and um, and I think by the time we got to shooting that, we were just like, "Look, what do we need to tell the story? Let's just get the wide," and then <laughs> and, and then just sort of went from there. So we never actually fully developed that that pre-crash '90s look, and it was just something that we we did, and we thought, "Well, how can we make this look different than?" Than the woods, well, it's not handheld, so it's 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 in many ways it it's sort of parallel the present day, in the sense that it wasn't handheld; it was more on the on the head uh, on dollies. Uh, we don't we never carried a Steadicam. Uh, I'm not a huge uh, Steadicam uh, user for the sake of Steadicam. It's why it's a great tool, you know, when you need to run up a, a well. It, it's. There's a lot of Steadicam owners. There's not a lot of really great Steadicam operators, and I don't say that in a, in a disparaging way. It's a, it's a very difficult tool to master, and when a Steadicam starts doing the things that I don't like about Steadicam, it becomes very obvious. Um, and that's things like you know when you get a little bit of masting and you start seeing horizons that are changing and, and that sort of thing. And it, it's there's they're getting much much better uh, these days, and they they have a place. Absolutely, in the, in the lexicon of, of tools, um, absolutely. I'm not I'm not anti-steadicam. I just don't rely on it all the time for movement.
1: And, and you, um, do you mean like the actual traditional SteadyCam or just colloquial SteadyCam, like including movies and things like that?
0: Um, movies is a whole different topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm into like steadicam at least has evolved and has matured. Movies are they're a great tool, and they again they have their place. Um, but I have an issue especially when I'm shooting episodic schedules uh, I have an issue with reliability and we just simply don't have time to be troubleshooting um, equipment issues yeah. and sometimes you know when you have when you have something like a movie that maybe wasn't um, initially designed to handle cameras that weigh 40 pounds um, you end up discovering issues with the uh, with the gimbal or with the with the rig that that take a little bit of time to troubleshoot, and I'm not. Again, I'm not uh, um, speaking ill of movie by any means. It's just that things are designed a particular way, and, and when we try to adapt them to how we're making our movie, sometimes that doesn't work out, and we just don't have time to. to well, uh, technical problems kind of can
1: span on. basically anything. I think, it, but yeah. it, it is another thing. Like it's another yeah. thing to go wrong, and when you're on a tight yeah. schedule, I totally understand it because sometimes it's just. And I see this in my in our own work. It's like sometimes it's just easier to put that, just hold the camera. It's like, just grab it, get a quick handheld shot, and it's done. We don't need to yeah. spend three hours, you know, troubleshooting and yeah. organizing and making all the technology yeah. work. Just hold the camera, yeah. shoot, and let's move. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing that's always a constant battle is, is trying to make sure that we're using the technology to service the story. And that's always that's always been a big thing for me is it's always been story first. And using our uh, book of tools uh to service a story. And if the steady cam is the right thing, great. Then let's use that. If the movie's the right thing for this moment, let's do that, you know. Um but over relying on something for the sake of it, uh, is is something you know, there's there's been times when we've been wrestling a telescopic crane into a tiny little location for no reason other than we have it and it's here, so we might as well use it. And and that's, you know <laughs> this show in particular uh that happened from time to time. Really? But, um um, but yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the other thing. Actually, speaking of, of, of operating stuff, we always, in, in lieu of the Steadicam, um, because it's still an episodic schedule, you know, we still have to move quickly, um, we'll often trade the the budget for the Steadicam uh, for a run-a-show Libra head or some other oh. uh, um, remote head, stabilized head, um, which then allows us to stick that on a dolly and drive over moderately uneven surfaces, surfaces without having to to lay dance for a delay track yeah um, you know for example we can roll a, a, a dolly down a road with the stabilized head on it and the head and rely on the head to soak up the, yeah. the imperfection. Yeah.
1: so um, so yeah that's, so a, going, good, sorry, we, that's a
0: good to, swap
1: when you really think about it when yeah. it comes to moving yeah. things quicker moving your day that that's a really good swap yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. And, and you know, uh, Daryl, our, our A operator, and, uh, and his guys with the, uh, uh, the Libra head um, are so in tune with one another. They work, they work together all the time, so much so that there's, there's a real um, uh, symbiosis between the operator and the head tech. So that, you know, when, when we're doing a complicated move, for example, that involves uh, running the third axis, the head tech is there intuitively running that third axis to keep the horizon level or yeah. to, you know, to, um, so it's, it's, it's great. You know, it's, it all comes with familiarity and, and, uh, uh yeah, <laughs> that's good. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but going back to the nineties, no, there wasn't really a, um, a pre formulated, uh, pre crash operating philosophy. We just sort of went with how, it, how each sort of story snippet felt. For example, in episode four, uh, we go to um, Natalie's uh, trailer where she grew up. Uh, present day, Natalie, uh, Juliette Lewis's character, shows up at the trailer to see her mom to to, to grab a, a tape out of the uh, out of her old bedroom, and we uh, have a, that triggers a little flashback into the uh, into the mid '90s that um, tells us the story of how Natalie's dad was killed, how he died, and in that instance, it like the the location so perfect it was an actual trailer that this lady lived in uh we cleaned it out and dressed it the way we wanted but but it was an actual trailer in an actual trailer park that wasn't in the best part of town and you know walking into the set every day through that environment motivated It, it gave you so many ideas um you know just being in that environment and we ended up shooting that whole sequence in there both the present day and the past uh, handheld without, I don't think we used a light at all on those two days, um, wow. inside that trailer. We just let everything push in from the windows. I think we did a little bit of a bounce outside in, in her bedroom, but other than that, it was just a bit of negative fill to take some, uh, take some fill away. And, um, you weren't lighting through the, the
1: windows yourself. You were just using no. really
0: Yeah, that was all just natural, natural daylight that was coming in. Um, and, you know, thanks to the cameras that we have, the technology that we have now, they're so, um, filming and how they respond to visual information that you can get away with that stuff without having to push artificial light. in. like, there's nothing worse to me than, than becoming conscious of artificial light <laughs> coming into a set, you know, it, it, that, that to me is a disservice. It, it draws attention away from the story. And, it, and it, at least for me, and, uh, it makes me start thinking about technique instead of, following the story. So I will avoid pushing light through, And you know, I, when we're lighting interiors, I'll, I'll always light from outside and push as much through from outside as I can. But the first step is always to see what's naturally occurring and then figure out, well, you know, if the sun, how long are we going to be in the scene? Are we going to be in the scene long enough that the sun just stays in the window? Or is it, are we going to be in this long enough that it, it's going to go around the building and, and change our continuity and then base decisions on how we light the scene on that. You know, uh, there's sometimes when you know you're going to be in a, a six pager in a room that starts with the sun pushing in, and then by the end of it, it's 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 gone. So in those cases, we'll take the natural sun away and introduce our own light to, so that we have control over it. But but by and large, I'll I'll always default to what's happening naturally and try to enhance that. Yeah, as much as possible.
1: I'm glad you mentioned um, interior shooting because. That's something I wanted to discuss because something I noticed in the present-day portion of Yellow Jackets is how much reliance on window light. Almost all of those interiors are just, just flooded with exterior light. And it, the interiors of these people's homes are pretty dark most of the time. Yeah. Not not most yeah. of the time, but enough of the time that it's noticeable. You really do get a sense that there's a happier world outside and kind of a gloomy world in their heart in their in their life in their home. Yeah. And um yeah. I mean it's obviously beautiful cinematography but it also it supports is. the storyline quite a bit. So can you talk to us a little bit more about the way you approached the modern day, the 2021, sure. 2020 yeah, 2021. Um Sure. Uh, interiors are just in general in uh, yellow jackets.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well most of our interiors uh most of our, our um, sort of go-to interiors like the inside of Shauna's house, the inside of Thais' house; um, those are all standing sets uh, that were built on stage. Um, our philosophies with with modern day stuff again anchor in in reality and being honest to what's to what's happening uh, in the real world if we're on a practical location, or being honest to what's happening in the story uh, if it's a if it's a, a studio uh, located or studio set like uh, like the house interiors. Um, you know when when you're in a when you're in a home when you're in a house there's and the lights are off there's generally just a push from the windows and that's all you kind of have to go by until you turn the light on in the house so so we were always really selective in what lights we turned on how much of the interior to uh, to bring into play if you will um, I love bringing light in from outside uh, on a stage set and letting it. Making it a really big source, and then letting it kind of skip off of surfaces in the room and bounce off walls and tables and stuff, and inform itself in a, in a lot of ways, uh, rather than trying to force a key light onto an actor's face. I'd, I'd rather just position our, our our big source outside carefully enough that it's it's just catching you know a little bit of a white bounce off that tablecloth or a little bit of you know that wallpaper coming back uh, to give us that that sort of reality. Mm -hmm. And then again, we do very little augmentation of that on set. We let the big sources kind of drive it just as they would, just as natural light would in a a practical location. Um, But yes, we definitely wanted, we always wanted to keep our characters on the dark side um, and, uh, and let there be a little bit of mystery in the shadows uh, because there's always this undercurrent of, of, of mystery. And, you know, there's uh, throughout the, the season, there's a thread of, of, everybody in the world wanting to know what happened and and the ladies withholding that information as much as they can so we always wanted to keep that sense of of underlying mystery no matter what we were doing yeah the whole time. Yeah.
1: yeah and i also see quite a few shots with the windows framed like actually building you know creating a smaller space within your set to just kind of have a conversation or it, 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 that yeah. seems to happen quite a bit and i think um uh, and, and I just love that use of natural light and sort of using windows to frame your scene.
0: Yeah, and that was something that uh, that the designer Brian Kane uh, and I, and actually our, our episode two director, who was then our producing director on the show, Jamie Travis, um, that was something that we all talked about uh, early in in prep was building sets that gave us the opportunity to have. Uh, a proscenium, and then a world like a you know a, a, a something that frames within the frame, and then another thing that frames within the frame, to to always give us a sense of depth, always give us a sense of of coming and going, and and, and places for characters to hide or to emerge from. There's always that you know rather than having big open rooms, there was always a corner to peek around or a, or a hallway to push down, you know that kind
1: of thing. Yeah,
0: and that was very much all of Brian uh, Brian Kane's. But uh, he was very careful with making sure that, that, you know, there was always something to look at. You know, if there was a staircase that went nowhere on our set, there was always something to look at around a corner or something to make you wonder, you know, what was up there. So.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> because there's so much mystery with these characters anyway. That's, that's kind of the whole point. Um, yeah. I want to talk about your lens package. You had said that one mm-hmm. of the big differentiators between each of your three looks— was the lenses. So what did you use in the modern day?
0: Uh, modern day, we were on, again, on the Alexa LF, and uh, we had a set of uh, Aerie uh, Signature Primes, mm. uh, which are a, a, a set of lenses that I discovered on a previous show. Um, these lenses are, to me, they're sort of the um, the peak of evolution um, in terms of digital lensing. They are, they're sharp without being overly sharp. They're incredibly um, great at reproducing skin tones and they are unbelievable in how uh, focus falls off on them. They have a particular character to them in the way that depth of field behaves, particularly at the two, eight, two, eight and a half shooting stop that I tend to be at. um, That's really, really kind to skin tones and to, and to, uh, to close ups and, and that sort of thing. Um, they're beautiful lenses. We didn't. I don't think we even used diffusion on those lenses. They're wow. so kind to uh, uh, to skin tones that we just didn't didn't need it. You know, we didn't need to add another layer between us and the and the story. Um, uh, in terms of color, uh, they're they're ever so slightly on the warm side, but uh, but seemingly only in the skin tones, um, and they're they're just gorgeous, gorgeous lenses. And we wanted to use that as a as a counterpoint in the present day that, that you know we were photographing uh, the characters with the most beautiful lens technology we could find but yet have them exist in this imperfect world so it was kind of a fun uh, a fun play with uh, with that
1: how did the signature primes work with the DNA lenses
0: uh, they're distinctly very different the DNAs yeah. tend to tend to uh, uh, tend to flare a lot they they and I don't mean you know your the Steven Spielberg um, uh, in camera flares. They they their coatings tend to allow them to to create veiling flares all the time. So if there's any light at all that's grazing the front element of of a DNA, it adds a layer of of um, texture to the frame. And the signature primes don't do that at all. Their 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 coatings are are um, Transparent, it's the best way I can describe them. They're they they do not draw attention to themselves, they don't they're not overly um uh reductive of flares. They yeah. uh they do allow flares, they do allow veiling flares, they just do it in a way that that syncs up with, with my personal aesthetic the best. Um, and when they do have a hot uh lenticular flare in the frame, they're they're really beautiful. Um, yeah, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to quantify. It's a really subjective thing for me um, yeah. lensing. Especially and when you're making
1: customizations. I mean, like yeah, when you yeah. well that was that was another question I had too because I don't have experience with either of those sets of lenses. Um, mm-hmm. but it sounds like based on the conversations I've had with you and other directors of photography, um, it seems like the the DNA are the ones that you would use for um, making modifications. But the signature primes, people tend to just use them as that. That's like that's the look you want. Is that signature prime? Yeah. Look.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so if I was doing, let's say, uh, if I was doing a, a a Jason Bourne movie, I would probably go for the uh, for the DNAs because they have kind of a roughness, uh, 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 an agility to them that's kind of fun. You know, they're you yeah. can you can tweak them to 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 look differently, or you can keep them perfectly neutral. Um, but if I was shooting, you know, um, uh, Queen Victoria, you know, in a period piece, I'd probably gravitate towards the signatures because they're, they're so forgiving. They're so beautiful that they, they draw less attention to the camera and, and, you know, feel more natural.
1: And it, in the three different looks that you have, they do work together as one unit, but you clearly know where you are in time when you're watching the show. And obviously, you know, art direction and different characters helps as well. But there is a general feeling um, of a more modern look in present day and a, a yeah. more sort of vintage look. We've got a couple specific questions from our audience that I want to put up there. Simon on Instagram sure. asked, what camera did you use? We've already talked about that, the uh, Alexa Um LF LF and LF LF
0: minis. And the mini LF, yeah.
1: We have one from Traver Gorley. I hope I'm saying that right. And this is very specific. And actually, I haven't seen this episode yet. So I hope there's no spoilers in there. But he wants to know about the setup um, it says, what was your setup for Thaisa and Shauna walk and talk in episode eight? So for those of you that have seen episode eight, yeah. I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> apparently there's a moment where there's a walk and talk. Can you, does that ring a bell, that scene? And can you kind of yeah. explain? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain it for yeah, us?
0: Sure. Sure. Well, in that, just to give it some context in that scene, what's happened is, um, uh, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody, but, but Shauna has been having this sort of illicit affair with a fellow named Adam. Um Immediately prior to this scene, they're having uh, dinner at home, Shauna and her family and Jeff and and, uh, and their daughter. And the doorbell rings and everybody thinks it's Adam, but it turns out that it's Thaisa who just wants to talk because her world's kind of coming apart a little bit. Yeah. So Shauna uh, goes outside and, and she and Thaisa go for a little walk uh, outside to have a conversation. Um, so the... Uh, Location that was a tricky one in terms of locations. We couldn't find a place that we really liked until I think we were actually shooting the episode already and then stumbled on this location while we were shooting. Um, it was in a town called new Westminster, which is near Vancouver. Um, and it played reasonably well for the, uh, for the, as a reasonably good, um, facsimile of the neighborhood that Shauna's house is in, which is in North Vancouver. Um, and our setup there, uh, if I remember correctly, we were looking down this alleyway, and uh, we pulled back with them. And then I think we did some coverage once they landed and stopped, and we covered them like that. And if I remember correctly, we had – well, camera was on um, uh, Signature Primes on the LF, probably in the 32 to 35 mil kind of range, 47. Um Uh, We were on, I believe, a 50-foot Technocrane, uh, which is sort of our go-to exterior uh, uh, camera conveyance device, let's just say. just gives you the most options. Um, Lighting-wise, I think we saw – we probably saw two and a half or three blocks, I think, in camera. Um, So starting far away, uh, I think we had a lift camera right – I can't remember. It could have been camera right or it could have been camera left. I think it was camera right uh, with uh, our usual lift package, which is two twenty 20 20Ks uh, or a 20 and a T24 um, and about a dozen PAR cans. Uh, and uh, what we do with those is um, use one of the 20Ks as a moonlight color. Uh, so that would have, in the case of this show, that would have steel green on tungsten. Um, and then the other 20K would probably have, in this case, I think it had a sodium, so like a 147 Lee gel on it uh, for a sodium look on tungsten, um, so that we could augment the streetlight uh, with a little bit more firepower. Yeah. Uh, the streetlight that was near the actors was a uh, was an art department uh, build that they brought in, and we dressed. You'll notice the streetlight in the uh, in the movie has a bunch of garbage bags around it, hiding the uh, hiding the base of the thing. Um, so, the scene was motivated by, like the key light in the scene was motivated by the color of the sodium, um, uh, offset by the steel green of the moonlight in the deep background. Uh, and then, as the characters get to their their closer marks, I like to introduce a little bit of neutral light just to keep skin tones uh, honest and, and neutral. Um, and I think that was pretty much it. Oh, and then the other thing that we do in the lift, uh, there's the 220Ks doing their jobs. And then we use these 12 PAR cans. Usually with medium or, or narrow uh, bulbs in them to pick out little pockets of light. So we'll point a, a, a what we call a fire starter, a, a, a narrow spot at from the lift at a bush or at a at a car that's on the ground, um, or at an intersection, just to create some some breakup in the uh, uh, in the light. And that's probably all we did. Oh yeah, we probably also had a um, a paper. Uh, a paper lantern with two um helio estera helios tubes in them yep. uh in it rather uh and we put that thing on the end of a painter's pole from home depot um the helioses are great because they're battery powered they're wireless you can you can manipulate them as you go along you can dim them you can change colors uh so we were we were uh, yeah now i remember uh, uh having to keep that out of the frame. Um, so during the walk and talk, we had the Technocrane uh, extended to its full length to start the walk and talk. The actors were walking towards us. The Technocrane is, is sucking back with the actors. And then uh, I think Michael Malachi, our one of our star lamp ops, was there with the painter's pole and the uh, paper lantern just to keep a little bit of neutral light on their faces. their faces. I and love then somebody's that. at the lighting board. <laughs> oh, yeah. And someone at the lighting board, uh, Dan Holt, in this case, our, our board operator, is probably there. Um Dimming, live dimming the helios tubes in the um, in the paper lantern to keep it from becoming too uh, obvious. So there you go.
1: I love pretty, that visual of setup. just holding a painter's pole and it's like you're doing a student <laughs> film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And trying not to bump into the, the you know, the $4,000 a day technocrat. Oh my uh, God. Yeah.
1: I love that. Um, yeah. And lastly, we got a question from Chris Bolton on Instagram asking to tell tell us more about your DIT, Ryan McGregor. <laughs>
0: Uh, so, just for some context, Chris Bolton is a DIT of Town, uh, also that I work with. Uh,
1: Chris, from why from wouldn't you want to r- promote yourself? Why are you trying to promote <laughs> another person? That is a fatal I flaw.
0: <laughs> I think he's trying to pull at the string, uh, pull the uh, at the at the thread here. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Chris and Ryan are both uh, like they're they're two of my favorite DITS in the world. Um, I've just out of scheduling happenstance been working with Ryan a lot more than Chris lately. Um, uh, the DIT is such a huge, um, collaborator for me. Um, Ryan and I have been doing shows for, for years now. Um, and there's so much that you can do. Like I traditionally, even when I was shooting film would rely on the DI to, um, uh, not necessarily fix things, but to augment things. I would always be shooting something thinking, okay, in post, I can window that corner down and make that brighter. And, you know, so I, I I try to think of post as a, as a, a, a part of my toolbox rather than, uh, rather than a a place to fix mistakes. Yeah. Um, and then the DIT of course is, is a method of bringing that, um, uh, or a large portion of that tool set onto set. Um, and, uh, in terms of how we do yellow jackets, um, we're protecting uh, an HDR delivery, which is something that's been happening more and more lately. High dynamic range uh, deliveries are uh, something that we always protect for nowadays. We don't necessarily we don't monitor high dynamic range on set. We monitor standard dynamic range only, and that's purely a cost thing. The monitors are very expensive, um, but we're always lighting and um, applying our lookup tables, our LUTs to the to the image to protect for HDR. So for people that don't really know uh, what HDR is, uh, I mean, you see it at, at the Best Buy and, you know, HDR, Adobe and all this stuff. It's on our, phones. Alyssa, right? it's on yeah, our exactly. phones now. Exactly. So HDR, in terms of, of the viewing experience um, on a show like this, uh, relies on a bunch of different things. Hardware being a big thing. Um, like you're not gonna see an HDR, a true HDR image Unless you're looking at a fifty thousand dollar HDR monitor in a in a studio environment, um, but that technology is trickling down and it will be coming. So we're protecting for it now. And essentially, what HDR does is allow us to expand the dynamic range of the image as we present it to the audience. Um, our cameras have always had the the Alexa, the, whether it's Red or Alexa, or the um, uh, the DXL, the Panavision camera. Yeah. Um, They've always captured in raw, which is very similar to, to film negative in terms of um, how much uh, resolution it has and how much uh, dynamic range it has. Uh, and by that, I mean the, the latitude between the brightest white information and the brightest at the darkest black information that the the, the originating source is able to record. Um, traditionally, we've watched TV on standard dynamic range, which is about, depending on who you ask, between seven and nine stops of of visible range on your screen at home. Um, so we've had to take, uh, in terms of the Area Alexa, 14 or 15 stops of dynamic range in the camera and compress that into seven to nine stops for a standard dynamic range. Um, which is, which is fine, you know, but it forces you to make decisions in terms of how much highlight detail you want to lose or how much shadow detail you want to lose in order to it's all a game of give and take right you can have you know deeper shadows and more detail in the shadows but it comes at the expense of highlights so what high dynamic range does is expand that seven to nine stops all the way up to to 14 stops that's visible to the audience so now we're able to create uh high contrast looking scenes that don't just go to black in the shadows. They carry detail all the way down. Like you can see subtleties in, in shadow detail and highlight detail that you never could before. And it brings the image to life. And the, the the layman's way that it does that is basically by pumping a whole lot more light through the back of your screen at you. So uh, a a normal um, TV screen that you go out and buy at Best Buy probably creates Maxes out at about a hundred or hundred and fifty nits of brightness coming towards you. High dynamic range in Dolby Vision requires a thousand nits, mm. so it's ten times brighter. You know, eight to ten times brighter than a standard dynamic range uh, image. So highlights are you know when there's a, a, a when the sun's in the shot, you're, you're you squint because it's so bright. You know, you can see in the shadows the way that you do in the real world. So for me, it's it's. It's a much more organic experience. That's a really lame way to say that, but uh, I know
1: what you mean. It's more natural, be, like you, you. Yeah, you see and it more like you would see it if you were actually looking at the scene with your own yes. eyes.
0: So, absolutely, and and I think for me at least, when something is so bright that it makes you squint and it makes your it makes your pupils contract, that that physiological reaction to the image is what makes it feel real mm. to me. You know, instead of just. Kind of staring at something that that's all kind of tailor made to to not offend you. HDR will offend you and make you feel like you're like you're there, and I, I really like that. So going back to the what the how the DIT works with that.
1: Well, before you, I'm um, just I'm curious what yeah. what do you mean when you say you're protecting for HDR because you're saying you're monitoring in, in um, standard um,
0: yes. uh, dynamic yeah. range.
1: So w- what does that? How are you protecting it if you're not even looking at? When,
0: it? <clears throat> totally. When when we. Um, the main thing that'll get you in HDR is sh- is shadows. Um, if you're just lighting with a standard definition, like an SDR mindset, uh, and you're looking at your your images on set, you're seeing how the shadows are going. You're going, okay, that's that's perfect. What you need to remember for HDR shooting is that when you guys go to the HDR pass in finishing color, all of a sudden that shadow detail that you were counting on going black is no longer going black. Mm. Like all of a sudden the the um the hdr monitor is going to start showing you detail in those blacks and if you light the set and expose the the images in such a way that it clips the blacks in standard dynamic range when you bring it to when you bring it to hdr all of a sudden all that detail that you could have had is gone because Mm. because you you chose to expose for sdr and um what that then does in HDR is that, that becomes your worst enemy, and all of a sudden HDR looks really muddy. When there's no detail in the shadows uh, in HDR, it looks really bad. Yeah, that makes and sense. It, and it draws. So you're so gonna what get we some do,
1: HDR monitors on set. That's insane.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. But what we do on set is is we build lots. Our lookup tables for the cameras have excessive uh, black crushing built into them, so that when we're lighting. When we're lighting sets and, you, and looking at our images on our on our standard definition range monitors, our standard dynamic range monitors, um, we're seeing an, an over-exaggerated crushing of the blacks. And what that does is it forces us to add a little bit more fill light and yeah. add a little bit more exposure so that it doesn't go pitch black in SDR. And then we know that because we've taken that information away in the LUT, that when you look at the raw image, it's all going to be there because, because we – Overlit the scene, basically. Yeah, you know, for that. So that's how you protect for uh, that, uh, it.
1: That it—that's it's almost in the way that, like, when you're using the more consumer Sony cameras, and you're using like um, S log three or something like that, you kind you right. you sort of it, it, it was more prevalent in S log two, but you kind of had to yeah. like overexpose more than you would yeah. be comfortable with because yeah. otherwise all your blacks just go away. So it's yeah. it's similar yeah, in thanks.
0: that. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when in doubt, overexpose it. That's, that's always been a rule, even with film, everything. You know, it's, it's the, the, the negative back in the day when we were shooting film and the, uh, uh, the raw or the log C or the S log all have the dynamic range to handle overexposure. You know, mm-hmm. but they don't, once you start underexposing, you're losing information that you'll never get back. So um, always overexpose You can always make, you know, uh, uh, blacks blacker. By overexposing and then controlling them in post, you know, mm. more effectively for sure. I love that. The traditionalists out there will be uh, uh, shaking their fists at me, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> one of the Send like your I hate say, mail t-
1: too, and then. <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> but it's just one of the tools, right? And you want to make the image look as as good as it can, and and using all the tools that are available to you is is paramount in, in that. You know?
1: The last thing I want to ask you is just to kind of round out our conversation here. Advice for aspiring cinematographers. There's a lot of them listening to this show. Yeah. They're you know, <laughs> young people trying to get into the industry. Um, yeah. You know, people like you are just huge inspirations for all of us. What is, what is some advice you have <laughs> for people to, how do you break into this industry to be a cinematographer?
0: Um, shoot everything you can. I mean, you've heard it before. Um, Shoot everything you can. Try to bring your stamp to everything that you do. Um, be honest to yourself. Um, I've never gone wrong with with always putting story first. Mm. You know, it's it's seductive to to create sexy images in lieu of of honesty to the story. But if you're doing narrative work, stay true to the story because it will always lead you in the right path. Um, be collaborative. Uh, listen to other people. Uh, regardless of who they are when they have an idea because um, I'm a control freak you know, and that's kind of how I uh, one of the things that I have to deal with on a daily basis and it's hard for me but I I try to force myself to listen when someone says hey why don't we do it like this or or, can we start the shot like this Um, take the time to listen to what people are saying and digest it before you say no I want to do it my way Uh, that's been I think the biggest lesson for me Um, So shoot everything you can collaborate with people, uh, put value on other people's ideas, give them give everyone around you ownership of the shot, ownership of the story that they're telling, and you'll get a lot more uh, back in terms of what you see on the screen. I love that just.
1: Yeah, Great advice. (laughs) And the show is fantastic. It's called Yellow Jackets. It's on Showtime. Um, Really great work, Kim. It's great on the air. Great conversation. We went a little longer than expected, but it is what it is. I had a lot of fun talking to you and I'm already looking forward to, I got to see episode eight, but your next episode is the finale, right? Is 10, is is episode 10, the last one? Look at you getting the finale episode.
0: I love that.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on. Where can people find you online?
0: Uh, I, my website is, uh, at ckimmiles.com. Um, I'm on Instagram at Kim Miles, I think K I M I L E S. I don't do a lot of social media, but, uh, if you want to hang out with uh, everyone else and wait for me to post something, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's the place to go. I love that.
1: We'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. See Kim uh, Miles. Thank you so much for being on. And, uh, I'm, we'd love to have
0: you back. Oh yeah. Anytime. Thanks for having me. It was a real, real pleasure.
1: All right, I want to thank C. Kim Miles for coming on the show to talk to us about his work on Yellow Jackets. The show is so good. Please let us know what you think of Yellow Jackets and also let uh, let us know what you think of this conversation. We love the feedback from our audience, so please keep it coming. I also want to thank our sponsors today, Filmmakers Academy, Master Your Craft at FilmmakersAcademy.com, and ARI Rentals. Thank you guys for sponsoring this show. I also want to thank Connor Crosby from IgnitionVisuals.com. He produces the show and makes it fantastic. As well as Dave Siegel, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good, you can find him at SiegelSound.com. Of course, remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Search Go Creative Show and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the episode, but see the episode. So you want to check that out as well. All Things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli. B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.